Hello, friends, and thank you for joining Christ Church Online. As we begin Holy Week, we also begin a new series entitled Great Expectations. To get us started, we are joined by the Reverend Dr. Ed Glover from the Urban Impact Foundation. Pastor Ed will be preaching on Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem, also known as Palm Sunday. Before we get to our message, let me remind you that you can head to ccgf.org to see all of the service times and details that we have planned for our Holy Week celebrations. Now, here is Pastor Ed with this week's message. Thank you for listening. Hey, this being Palm Sunday, the, our title is called Journey to the Cross. Our passage is found in Matthew chapter 21, looking at verses 1 through 11. And Robbie did a fantastic job reading it. Give your hand to Robbie over there. Thanks, Robbie. But before we begin our study, I want to I just take us back to the background of our passage to help us understand what's going on. It is the Passover week in Jerusalem. That's important. It's Passover week in Jerusalem. This is when the Jewish pe- people gathered together one time a year to celebrate when God delivered them from their enemies. And their enemies were who? Pharaoh and the Egyptians. However, the Jewish crowd that had gathered together on this particular Passover, they didn't come just to celebrate their past deliverance. No. They were believing, as they, would, as they were coming to Jerusalem, that Jesus was to come, and he was going to deliver them from their present enemies, Caesar and Rome. Historians tell us that there was probably a crowd of two million people that gathered together in the holy city as, Je- as Jesus entered in his last time into Jerusalem. And his popularity was at its all-time high. Why? Because he just recently resurrected the, the, the Lazarus. If I should tell, why am I saying that? He resurrected Lazarus from the dead. Just did that. So his popularity was off the charts. However, his popularity in the political realm, among the, among the religious leaders, was at its all-time low. Why? Because they were threatened and jealous about his popularity and they wanted to get rid of him. Matter of fact, the chief priests and the Pharisees who were motivated by fear of losing their political control and power were plotting to assassinate the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus was a wanted man by them. And they ordered anyone who knew where he was to report his whereabouts to them. Why? Because they wanted to kill him. So on one hand, we have the Jewish people and they love Jesus. And they were believing he was the Messiah and he was going to deliver them from the Romans, their enemies. On the other hand, they had the religious leaders and they hated him. And they were plotting to assassinate him. And that is the setting that Jesus rides into on the first Palm Sunday. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I would ask you right now in Jesus' name that you would forgive me and cleanse me of any sin and that you would fill me with your spirit. And Spirit of God, you would speak through me to your people. And we as your people wouldn't just be hearers of the word, but we would be doers of it. And you wouldn't just stir us, but that you would change us. For Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Have you ever been to a movie when you're watching it, you're thinking it's going in one direction, and all of a sudden it takes a twist, a turn, and it goes in a different direction, a totally different direction, and you never saw it coming? Have you ever seen a movie like that? Raise your hand. I have, yeah, many of you. Well, that's what's happening in our passage today. On the first Palm Sunday, as Jesus is entering into Jerusalem, they're honoring him as if he's a conquering king. They're throwing down 
palm branches. They're yelling out, Hosea, Hosea, the son of David. They were looking for a political hero. They were looking for a Messiah. They believed Jesus was coming into Jerusalem that day to rescue them from the Romans. But when they realized that Jesus had no intention of overthrowing the Roman government and that they understood that the Pharisees and the religious leaders were against Jesus, they turned on him. And they turned on him and all of a sudden they were no longer saying, Hosanna, the son of David. They were yelling out and screaming, crucify him, crucify him. And it took a twist. It changed right there and it was nobody could see that coming that palm sunday as the palms as he's riding in everybody thinks he's going to be a hero within less than a week they're crucifying him nobody could see that coming except with the exception of jesus himself oh he saw it coming matter of fact he predicted it a number of different times remember we're studying in matthew chapter 21 i want to bounce all the way back to matthew chapter 16 Would you do that with me? 16, starting with verse 21. This is what it says. This is one of the first times Jesus tells his disciples, predicts his death and his resurrection. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. A second time, in Matthew chapter 17, Verses 22 through 23, he said this to his disciples. When they came together in Galilee, he said to them, The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and on the third day he will be raised to life. And the disciples were filled with grief. I want you to notice that the disciples understood what Jesus was saying. Why? Because they were filled with grief. They knew it. They heard it. They understood it. But now if you can, if you're willing, would you please stand and read the third time with me? Please stand. And let's read the third time when Matthew chapter 20, in chapter 20, starting with verse 17. The third time that Jesus predicts his death and his resurrection. Starting with verse 17. Now Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. On the way he took the twelve aside and said to them, We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death, and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And on the third day, he will be raised to life. Thank you. You can be seated. Clearly, the twist in the story was no surprise to Jesus Christ. Not at all. He knew when he was going into Jerusalem that he was on a journey to a cross. He understood his mission and what was taking place. And with that all in the background, understanding the backstory of our passage, now let's get into verse 1. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples. Now I want to ask you a question. Where are they coming from? It says there, as they approached Jerusalem, they're coming from Jericho. In Jericho, Jesus healed two blind men. One of them was, was, uh, oh my word, I forgot, Bartimaeus. And as he healed him, then he started a relationship with Zacchaeus. Remember Zacchaeus? Oh, was a little, wee little man. A wee little man was he? Yeah. It all happened there in Jericho. 
It all went down. Then they left Jericho and started heading to Jerusalem. But then the scriptures tell us that they stopped in Bethany. Bethany was famous. Famous for what? That's where Jesus healed, resurrected Lazarus from the grave. And now he stops in Bethany, and who's he, who's he stopping to see? Lazarus. He's at his house, and he's hanging out with his two sisters, Mary and Martha, the whole family. The next day he gets up, he and the disciples, and they head out to, the, to Jerusalem. And just before they enter into Jerusalem, there's a little village. And that little village is called Bethphage. And now we're back at our passage. And there he tells his two disciples to go get a donkey in its colt. Verse 2 says, go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there. And her colt by her, untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. Why does Jesus choose to ride in on a donkey? I mean, he's the king. That's what they're going to be saying. He's the king. And it was customary that any king, I mean, they wouldn't be riding in on a donkey. They'd be riding in on a, on a stallion or a chariot. Not a donkey. And this is the king, the king of kings. Why does he choose to ride in the way that he rode? Verse 4. It tells us. Verse 4 tells us this. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. What prophet? Prophet Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9 is quoted right here in verse 5. And it says this. Say to daughter Zion. Zion was another way of saying Jerusalem. Still is today. See your king comes to you, gentle, riding on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a donkey. This is just one of the many prophecies about the coming of the Messiah in the Old Testament. Matter of fact, there's over 330 plus prophecies about the coming of the Messiah in the Old Testament. And did you know that Jesus Christ in his lifetime fulfilled all 330 plus prophecies in his lifetime? Now, I don't know if you understand the significance of what I just t- said, the miraculous significance. So let me give you an illustration to help you understand. Mathematicians have actually done the math to figure out the odds of some person fulfilling all 330 plus prophecies. And what they came up with is this. That odds, the odds of that is 1 in 84 to the 123rd power. What's that mean? That means 84 with 123 zeros behind it. Let me say that again. 84 with 123 zeros behind it. I don't even know what to call that number. I have no idea. But listen, Jesus Christ fulfilled all the prophecies in his lifetime. Listen, he was not in control of all the prophecies when he was hanging on the cross. He was not in control of all the prophecies that when he walked out of the grave. And there's a number of other prophecies he had no way of ever, ever controlling them. He can control this one. He knew about this prophecy and he got on a, a donkey and he went to Jerusalem. Yes, he could control this one. But there's a purpose behind what he's doing. And we're going to find that out this morning. Look at this. You see, as he's riding in, you've got to ask yourself the question. Okay, Jesus came into Jerusalem many, many times. But now he's meticulously choosing to get on a donkey. And we found out why. At least one of the reasons. Because Zacharias told, foretold about this whole thing happening 500 years before Jesus ever showed up on the scene. Second reason is there's hundreds of thousands of people lining up the road 
into, into Jerusalem. And Jesus wants everyone to know that he's the Messiah. He, as well as all the Pharisees and the chief priests. He wants them to know as well. And he knew that they were plotting to assassinate him. He knew that they would know about that prophecy. So what's he doing? What's he doing? Jesus is putting into motion a series of events that would lead him to a cross. He was in total control. He was predicting it. He knew what was going to happen. And he knew if he rode in, those guys who hated him, it would provoke them and it would motivate him to take his life. Which had been prophesied for hundreds, thousands of years ahead of time. And here he comes. Totally in control. You know, it's a temptation to believe at times when you read the story and you don't know the backstory I just told you. You can begin to believe as you're watching the, the, you know, the Good Friday and you're watching Easter. You start to think, you know, Jesus was a victim here. That's the temptation. He was a victim. That somehow those Pharisees and, and the chief priests, they were in control. That Jesus, he, he was helplessly swept away to an untimely execution. That is not the truth. That's not what was going on. Jesus was in control, my friend. And from the moment he was entering into Jerusalem, and and I remind you beforehand, he has predicted his death. He knows what's happening. He was in control. Jesus is not a tragic figure whose plans had horribly derailed. No. Jesus knew exactly what he was doing, and he was unfolding the plan. And that plan was to lay down his life For you. This is the one time in church you can say it's all about you. It really was. If you were the only one on the planet, Jesus would have done this. Look right here. The only one on the planet, he would have done this for you. And he went there, and what's amazing is you you watch it all unfold. And This year, I'm serious, as we come to Good Friday and you come Easter Sunday, you remember what I'm saying. You remember this. It was not the chief priest. It was not the Pharisees or Judas, Pilate, the Roman soldiers, or even the crowd that had the power to take the life of Jesus Christ. Oh, they participated. But they did not have the power to take his life. He gave his life. He gave it. Look what he says over in John chapter 10, verse 17 and 18. I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me. But I lay it down on my own accord. Listen, Jesus was not a victim. He was on a mission. He knew exactly what was going down. He was on that donkey. He was moving into there. He knew he was on a journey to a cross. Listen, when you get there on Good Friday and Easter, you remember, you remember this, that the nails are not what is holding Jesus on that cross. It's his love for you. You remember that. Wasn't the nails? Listen to me. Jesus Christ raised people from the dead. He healed people. You don't think that Jesus, the son of God, could have called down legions of angels and wiped out everybody that was trying to kill him? Absolutely. But he knew he had to go to a cross because if he didn't, we'd all be lost. What drove him, look right here, what drove him was his love for you. 
Let's look at verse 6 now. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd, we know it's hundreds of thousands of people, spread their cloaks on the road while others cut branches. We know they were palm branches. From the trees and spread them on the road. Verse 9, the crowds that went ahead of him, those that followed, shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest heavens. Listen, those folks lining that road that day knew exactly what they were saying. And they believed with all their heart that Jesus Christ was the Messiah. Why do I say that? Because the words they are saying to him in unison were only reserved for the Messiah. Hosanna means save us now. The title, the son of David, was, everybody knew this. It was common in those days. The son of David was only reserved for the Messiah. So what they were saying, they were saying this. Hundreds of thousands of them in one accord were saying, save us now, great Messiah. Save us now. They believed that Jesus was coming into Jerusalem that day to deliver them, rescue them from the Romans. They were believing he was going to be like Moses, who once delivered the people out of Egypt. Now he'd come to deliver them out of of Rome. And they believed that with all their heart, but they misunderstood. They were right by telling and believing that he was the Messiah. And we can't blame them that they wanted freedom. But they misunderstood his mission. His mission wasn't to come to Jerusalem that day to deliver them from the Romans. He was coming to Jerusalem that day to deliver them from sin and death. That's why he rode in. He was headed to a cross. And he knew if he didn't go, we'd all be gone. We'd all be doomed. And he knew he had to die on that cross for our sin, and then he had to walk out of the grave. And because he walked out of the grave, he has all the power and the authority now, today, to forgive you and me and give to us eternal life. But in verse 10, it says this. When, when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? Now, we know about the crowd, the people, the Jewish people. They believed Jesus was the Messiah, but they misunderstood his mission. We understood the critics, the religious leaders. They hated Jesus because they were losing their control of their popularity, their power, their control. And they wanted to kill him. But the people in the city, they didn't have a clue who he was. They're saying, who is this? Why? Because they were the Gentiles. They were the Romans. They were called the pagans. They had no clue about the truths that were found in the Old Testament. So they were all wondering, who is this? Who is this? Now, I don't know. I know this is true for me that on Easter, around the Easter season, I get very concerned because there are people who will come to church that normally don't come to church. Or there'll be people who, are, who have been in church and they come, but they really don't understand who Jesus is. They have some kind of Jesus that they believe in, but it isn't the one from the Bible. It's come out of experiences and religion and all that, and they tied all that in. That's who they think Jesus is. Then there's others who are really angry at God, and they still come to church around Easter, but they hate him. So, but then there's a whole bunch of people that come to church like they always do, and they're committed to Jesus. So you have the committed, you have the critics, you have those who are confused, you have those who misunderstand, and then you have those who have no clue. Well, I was one of those guys that had no clue. Because when I grew up, 
My father was an atheist. We never went to church. I never went to church in my life. I had no idea what Easter was all about. I thought Easter was all about candy and jelly beans and, and Easter egg hunts and all that kind of stuff. No idea that Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sin and then he was raised again from the dead. And he had the power to forgive me and give to me eternal life. Had no idea. But when I was young, I'd walk around, I did things, I, I said things and done things, and I had guilt. But I didn't know what to do with it because nobody told me about the Lord Jesus Christ. So one Easter, one Christmas after another, I'd walk around with all this stuff until I finally got to college. When I got to college, there was this young lady, her name was Anna Dickey. And she came up to me and she began to tell me who Jesus was and what he had done for me. She told me everything that I just said to you. And she said, Ed, Jesus wants to be your Savior and your Lord. But she said, you have a problem. The problem is you have a God, and it's not Jesus. And I said, what's that God? She goes, baseball. See, I was on a baseball scholarship, and I was headed towards the Pirates. And I was on that track. And she said to me, she said, Ed, I'm going to say this to you. There's, you have a God in your life called baseball, but then there's Jesus. I want you to know there might be a day that baseball will disappoint you, will fail you. Because you're either, either going to get old and can't play it anymore, or you might get hurt, or you might not be good enough. And then all of a sudden, that baseball, that thing you've been living for, all that you do, that you're committed to, it will drop the ball on, for, on you. And then she told me, she goes, but Jesus, no, no, he's real. He's alive. He's living. And he wants a relationship with you. And he died on the cross for your sin. And he could give you eternal life. By the way, he created you. And you, become, you can become a child of God. And when you become a child of God, you can really fulfill your purpose in life. She goes, but when you look at these two gods, you know how you're committed to baseball, Ed? When you choose to leave that and you choose Jesus, you've got to be committed to Jesus as much as you've ever been committed to baseball, if not more. And if you don't do that, if you're not committed, then don't do it. Then don't mess around because it won't be real. You'll play all kinds of games. And she would, tell, she would tell me, there's a lot of people in church playing all kinds of games. They go to church, they go this, they do that, and they're counting on that. But they really don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ because they never truly committed themselves to him. But he's all committed to you, Ed. So when that comes, that day comes, you'll know what to do, won't you? I said, yes, I did. I graduated from college. I came down to Three Rivers Stadium on June 9th, 1979, and they brought everybody from the country that they were looking at to take one last look at us all before they did the draft. And what they do is they run you on a 60-yard dash, you throw and you hit. We all lined up. We ran a 60-yard dash. Everybody ran. They called out two names, mine and a kid from Wheeling, West Virginia. We lined back up again. We ran. I beat him. And I was standing over at second base. My scout came running up to me and looked at me and said, Ed, all you got to do is throw. Man, we're going to sign maybe in the first round. Turned around and walked away from me. Had no clue, no understanding that I had an injury and I couldn't throw. And I stood there and it was like my dream went up in smoke. But right in that moment, it was like, I'm not kidding you, it was like Anna was standing right there. And I could hear her say, there's two gods, Ed, and this one will fail you. You're either not going to be good enough or you get hurt. And boy, I could hear her now. She said, but if you commit yourself to Jesus like you're committed to baseball, he'll do something in your life. He'll give you a purpose, a meaning. He will never leave you nor forsake you. He will change your life because he's the one who created you and you become a child of the living God. And then I knew exactly what to do because she taught me. I got on my knees 
And I asked Jesus Christ to become my Savior. Now listen. When I prayed that prayer, I knew what I was doing. I knew I'd screwed up. I knew I needed a Savior. I was just fighting. But I finally surrendered myself. And then I prayed this prayer. I said, Jesus, Anna tells me that you can heal. And if you can heal, it would be a good time to do it right now. I got up from second base, went over, and I threw horrifically. Everybody went home. Two weeks later, came out. I didn't get signed. But I was riding down a highway. No, this is the truth. A semi almost hit me head on. I drove off into the grape vineyard. Hands up on the steering wheel, heart up in my throat. I was scared to death. But I tell you the truth. I knew if I died, I was going to heaven and I had no real understanding. It was like, man, I knew it. I pulled my car out of that ditch. I went home and called Anna. I said, Anna, this is what happened. She said, Ed, listen to me. I said, sure. She goes, God created you. But now you're a child of the living God. And she said, what you've got to do now is you've got to start reading the Bible. You've got to start praying. You've got to start hanging around people who've walked with Jesus longer than you. And you've got to learn and you've got to grow because it's a brand new relationship that you have. You're not talking about a Jesus who's dead. You're talking about one who's alive and he wants to help you now. You'll never, ever be alone again, ever. And he can take that guilt right out of your life and transform you. But you've got to be committed. You've got to go all the way. You've got to really build that relationship with him. And I did. And then God called me into the ministry. And I went to seminary. And I met my beautiful wife, Tammy. And we came out of the seminary. And we've been in Pittsburgh ever since, preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ for 33 years right here in the city of Pittsburgh. <laughs> Praise our God. To God be the glory. Is my life perfect? No. Do I still sin? Yes. But I'm growing. I'm becoming stronger. I'm, I'm walking deeper. And I'm, I, I am never alone. And I live for Jesus. And Jesus helps me even when I stumble. He gets me up one more time than I fall. You understand? But that doesn't happen if you're not committed. See, it becomes all head knowledge. It becomes somebody else's faith. And when you finally make it your own and you really mean it, young person, when you really, really mean it, and I know how tough it is. I've been working with young people for 33 years. I get it. But all this stuff that you see going on all around you will never change until you change. And the only way you're going to change is when you finally come to that place and you say, man, I'm giving my life to Jesus Christ. And he can use you. I don't care how old you are, how young you are. Jesus Christ can use you. Don't let anybody tell you anything different. He made you. He created you. He's given you a purpose. And he can use you for his glory and his honor. You're not a mistake. You're not here by accident. You've been chosen by God to be in this room today. And he wants to do something in you that only he can do. So don't let anybody else tell you anything different. We ought to have an amen about that one. All our young people, we love you and we're so thankful, so grateful that you're in the room. But let me talk to us all. And what I just said to them is true about you. But I want to give you two really quick promises. Because there might be one or two of you like me in the room. Listen to this. The first promise is this. Romans chapter 10 verse 13. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Whoever who is that? You. Regardless of who you are, where you come from, and what you have done, if you're willing to commit your life to Jesus Christ, he will forgive you and save you. 
Second promise. Colossians chapter 3 verse 4 says this. Jesus has forgiven all our sin. What does all mean? All. Past, present, future. Say that with me. Past, present, future. All your sins. And it goes on and it says, and canceled every record of it. Canceled. Let me ask you a question. Do you remember the debts that have been canceled? Do you remember the bills that have been paid? Do you sit around and worry and fret over the bills and the debts that have been paid? No. Why? Because they've been paid for. When Jesus Christ hung on that cross and said it's finished, what's what's he saying? It's finished. I paid for it. Listen, if God forgave it, you can forget it. That is a truth. That is the good news. But also the word cancel. What does that mean? It means a clean slate. Say that with me. A clean slate. How many of you have had one of those etch-a-sketches? That little red thing with the white knobs. You make little pictures with it. But when you mess up, what do you do? You turn it over. You shake it. And you turn it back up. And what happens? The slate is clean. You get a fresh new start. You need to start all over again. That's what Jesus Christ has done for you. It canceled our debt. Forgave us. It's clean. You get a brand new beginning, but you cannot get your sins canceled and you cannot have this fresh new start if you're not committed. But if you commit, that's only half the good news. The second half of the good news is this, that Jesus Christ not only died on the cross, but then he was raised again from the dead. He walked out of the grave and when he walked out of the grave, he beat death. He overcame it. And because he overcame sin and death, that means you do not have to be afraid to die. So many men and women that I work with are so afraid to die. You don't have to be afraid to die. Because Jesus has already won the war. Not just the battle. He's done it. It's over. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. You don't have to fear this. It's guaranteed Jesus Christ made a way for each and every one of us. And death has no sting on us. We live for all eternity with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you might be out there and you'll be saying, you know, Pastor Ed, I don't know if I've really ever... Now, I've been to church and I've prayed before. I prayed that prayer a number of times. I don't know if I'm really... I've never truly surrendered myself. I mean, flat out said, God, I'm all in. Or you might be here today and you're like clueless like I was. But you've just heard it for the very first time. Clearly understood what was going on. Who Jesus is and what he's done for you. And you've realized that what he did for you is enough for you. And you want to know him right now. You can. I'm going to pray with you. The prayer does not save you. This is just you responding to God. You know what Anna would do? She would go over this prayer with me almost every time she talked to me. You know what you're going to do, Ed? You're going to pray this prayer when you... so I could do it by myself or I could do it with her. But in case, because you're with me, I'm going to pray. The prayer is not magic. It doesn't save you. This is you responding to Jesus Christ. You want to begin that relationship? You want your sin canceled? You want that fresh new start? Pray this prayer with me. Bow your heads with me. You ready to pray this prayer? Those of you who've been in the church for a long time, man, you wanted this Easter to be the greatest Easter you've ever had in your life. And you've been hanging on to stuff, and you know it. You've been watching stuff you shouldn't be watching at. You've been talking about things you shouldn't be talking about. You know it. You're, you're in relationships you, need, you, you, know, you know you need to get out of. This is the day, my friend. You turn it over to Jesus right now. And those of you that are in this room, and you're really not sure if you even know him, pray this prayer with me.
Oh, Father, we thank you that you sent the Lord Jesus Christ for us, for me. And Jesus, what you did on the cross is enough for me. And I ask you to be my Savior and my Lord. I ask you to forgive me. And I turn from the way I'm living and I turn to you. I am totally surrendering myself over to you right now. And I'm asking you to fill me with your spirit. Help me to tell somebody. Help me to get into a small group or a Bible study. Help me, Father. Help me to grow so that I can be and reach everything that you desire me to do and to be. For, Lord, I ask these things in Jesus' name. And before we say amen, did you pray that prayer with me? Would you please, everybody, just raise your hand like this. Raise it up high. Very good, many of you. All right. In Jesus' name, amen. Look right here. Look right here. I don't know how many of you asked Jesus into your life right now for the very first time. But I know a lot of hands just went up. So I'm thinking there, there's a lot of us, a lot of the body of Christ, that just recommitted themselves to Jesus. So whether you recommitted or you've come to know the Lord, hear me, church. We come to church. We pray. We give. We serve. We wait for these days. There are a number of our brothers and sisters who recommitted themselves. And there are some who are not our brothers and sisters who just joined the family of God in this room. And we need to give praise and glory and honor. Let us worship him. Let us worship him. He's been doing it right here for 10 years. Let's stand and let's praise our Lord for what he's doing. Thank you and happy Easter to you.